Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And this week, we're talking with one of the hosts of the Horror Drafts podcast, the researcher for a little podcast called With Gorley and Rust, and my pal. Welcome, Brantley Palmer. How's it going, man? Oh, I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me, George. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Really excited to finally get you on the show. We've had your choice picked out for a while and finally found a spot in the calendar where we could slip it in. So very excited about this one. Yeah, same here. Anytime I get to talk the hitcher, I'm uh, I'm very excited. Hell yeah. Well, before we get into the hitcher, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in general? Yeah, sure. Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, when I was like a, a kid, like a little kid, I was kind of a scaredy cat. I I didn't want anything to do with horror. I remember being at a sleepover when I was probably, I don't know, eight, nine, something like that. They put the leprechaun on. (laughs) And I mean, just in like the opening credit scene, which if I remember correctly, it's been forever since I've seen it, but it's like tracking shots of like the cellar and you just hear like the leprechaun laughing. And I was like too scared already. I was like, no, I'm (laughs) I'm done. I'm done. Um, But then, you know, I started getting into like goosebumps and like through books and scary books and then Stephen King really getting into it to the point where, I mean, when I was 12, my parents like for a birthday present just went to the video store and were like, he can watch whatever he wants. Like, we're not going to be able to (laughs) hold back the floodgates at this point. So go for it. And I think what really precipitated that was I was at a friend's birthday party i think it was like the summer or maybe the spring of like um 97 or something like that or the summer they were a little older than me and scream was on video on demand and that was part of that 12th birthday party was seeing scream wow and that was like whoa this is amazing i love this movie i remember thinking like how do they do this because that video on demand was when you could still see the director's cut and so you saw like the guts spill out of uh, Steve, the boyfriend, when he was outside <laughs> tied up. And I was like, whoa, how did they do that? Uh, and that just like began a, a, a lifelong love of horror, basically. I started going to horror conventions in the early 2000s. Um, I was watching as much as I could. And it was really great getting a chance to go to those conventions and actually meet you know, people who are now dead, you know, I have like photos and um, autographs from people like Angus Scrim, the tall man in Phantasm who has course, passed yeah. away now. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> I have West, I have West Craven's autograph, you know, so it's, it's nice to have kind of gotten those experiences and uh, yeah. yeah, it's been fantastic. And I've just been loving horror ever since. Hell yeah, man. Do you have a favorite subgenre? You know, you mentioned Scream as kind of a big beginning point. There are slasher elements to this. I'm curious if it's slasher or that's just coincidence. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I have a favorite. I'd say that certainly a lot of my favorites, I would say, fall into that slasher category. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm a fan of it all. But yeah, I I guess that I guess slasher would probably be the favorite just because that's where so many of my favorites lie. But I mean, Tremors is one of my favorite movies period horror or not and that's like a horror comedy and you know a monster movie so it's you know all over the place sure well like i said the movie we're talking about today is the hitcher released in 2005 starring will smith and kevin james <laughs> just kidding obviously but i was writing this and i was like thinking to myself who the hell actually directed that movie hitch and um, I'm suspicious of this guy's existence. Can you guess who directed Hitch? I have not the faintest clue. His name is Andy Tennant. So there you go. Now we learned a little fact about Hitch. But nice. I digress. 
Hitcher was actually released February 21st, 1986, directed by Robert Harmon and written by Eric Red. Eric, you might know from Near Dark, among a few other interesting works like Body Parts. And after he took a driveaway car while moving from New York to Texas, he worked as a cab driver and wrote this for his AFI Conservatory thesis script. Looking for production, he wrote a bunch of letters that described the screenplay and one wound up in front of David Bombick, who was like, you're in luck, kid, because I love it. (laughs) I found this quote from Bombick when he was asked about what stood out to him about it. And he said, Eric chose these brilliant mythic elements to have this boy traveling across Texas, the great American frontier, and having the hitchhiker emerge out of the landscape. He's a primal element with no context, and you can't explain him. What does he mean? Why is he doing this? In reality, there's a universe out there that contains danger and evil and tragedy, and I think the hitcher is about the process of coming to the reckoning of all this. How do you deal with the enigma of this life that you're living? You can't figure it out, but you've still got to do it. That's a great quote, and it sums up my experience watching this movie. I can't figure it out, but I just have to keep experiencing it and going through it over and over again. <laughs> they also had to shape up this script because it was overly violent in their opinions and hewed closer to an exploitation movie, although exactly what got cut is up for debate since I saw conflicting reports about the pulling scene in particular. Mm. A producer interviewed by the LA Times said, quote, they were trying to make her death not horrible when, by the nature of the script, it had to be. And director Robert Harmon continued by saying, it was a tough moment in a tough script, and we were constantly trying to be vigilant and not emasculate the script. The structure and tone and whole edifice that Eric created wouldn't have withstood the removal of that scene. They suggested that she be allowed to be killed, but we would soften the scene by having a funeral. Maybe I was a little too glib about things at this point, but I said that I would be very happy to give her a funeral if I could do it with five caskets or one very, very long one. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) That's a good joke. I got it. That is a good joke. Yeah. I wonder if he like had that in the moment or he had to he like went back and thought about the notes and then responded <laughs> how quick was your wit <laughs> there was also many quotes in this la times article which was from february 23rd 1986 so just two days after the release this article came out and a lot of the quotes were from producers who were like unlike slashers this has artistic integrity <laughs> we didn't want to just make nightmare on elm street 3 and i'm like man nightmare on elm street 3 is good <laughs> It is. (laughs) I mean, I would say it's an accurate statement, though. I think on a very surface reading, this is just a slasher, but there's definitely a lot more artistic, you know, subtlety and nuance going on here. Yes, I do agree. I will say it just there's a lot of the same like elevated horror shit that's going on in there. Howell talks about it. And even Bombic specifically said, this is a quote, the challenge was to take something like this movie which is part of the genre and to elevate it. So what you get back is a suspense film. And I was like, come on, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nevertheless, they signed the letter of intent that they wanted to make it. And they started looking for a cheap director. And luckily Harmon was much buzzed about from his short film, China Lake, but hadn't actually done any features yet. He had been offered mostly police stories, but he felt most strongly about this, the story and, and attached himself in 1984. And so now the producers were happy that they had a young upstart director who was going to be behind the scenes here. But the problem was that they couldn't get studio funding. And part of that was because of Harmon's lack of experience. He told a story in Fangoria about how MGM offered the producers a deal if they'd switch the directors to Sidney Fury. That's got a sting. Yeah. Yeah. 
But he said he was determined to apply, quote, taste and cinematic atmosphere to a simple and violent situation. And I think that this is interestingly boosted by his background as a still photographer. And you can see it come out in a lot of really beautiful shots with the landscape framing the characters like real tiny at the bottom. It's a really spectacular looking movie and they take time to have these vistas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I also laughed a lot at this quote, which was also from Fangoria. It's not so related to the movie, but it was part of the same interview and I did just find it amusing. So I'm just going to put it in. Sure. This is still from uh, Harmon. Quote, some guy working on a painting in his attic says, oh, this really stinks and tears the work up. But if Universal Pictures spends 12 million on a film and somebody says this stinks, they're still going to release it to try and make some of their money back. (laughs) Movies are very hard to make. And there's no reason to think why they should all be decent. Most of them should be terrible. And they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's, I mean, it's, he's and he's absolutely right. I mean, you don't see hear many directors being that candid. But, I mean, like, film and television, more so than, like, almost any other artistic endeavor, are just, they're so collaborative. You need mm-hmm. so many different people involved that, I think they, the saying is that there's three miracles. It's a miracle anything gets made. It's another miracle if anyone sees it, and it's a third miracle if it ends up being any good at the end of it, right? It's really incredibly hard to make a a very good film. It is a miracle. And like you said, it is so collaborative. And just the it's part of what makes, I think, movie making so beautiful is that with a lot of other stuff, you can kind of ride it out solo. But even for like an auteur led film where someone's like, oh, this is a Kubrick or oh, this is a Cronenberg, like ultimately, it is the result of so many people putting in work, even if it has their authorial sort of imprint on it. And I, I think that that is something really special about the medium. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Our main character is Jim Halsey, played by C. Thomas Howell, although apparently Emilio Estevez wanted it really badly. And Tom Cruise was also considered. So would would Emilio have done this instead of Maximum Overdrive, which I think was also 86? I think so. And oh, I... I like Maximum Overdrive probably more than most people. Um, Mm. I think I would be interested to see what his take on this looks like, though. Yeah, same here. Before we get too far into the movie, can I ask you how you watched it? One of my friends has the German Blu-ray and he ripped it to his Plex. Oh, I'm jealous. Okay. (laughs) I I threw this on because the only place it's streaming is HBO Max because it was a co-production of HBO and TriStar and I think one other production. It is like they took their tape master from 86 or 87 and just like digitized it and threw it up there. It is four by three cropped. So it's not even, you know, anywhere close to even like a 16 by nine, which I ended up just taking the DVD I have, which is probably 20 years old and watching it on there (laughs) instead, because that at least the transfer A looked better on this like much older DVD and B I think it, I don't, I don't know if it's definitively and if it's original 239 one aspect ratio, but there was like black bars at the top and bottom. So it was certainly presented wider than the um, standard 16 <laughs> by nine, yeah. but it was at least not this like cropped four by three oh, for man. like a old uh, CRT TV. That sucks, especially yeah. with this movie. Like it is so yeah. those wide shots are so spectacular. They are. So anybody who wants to see it, like 
I cannot implore you enough. Do not watch this cropped <laughs> version on HBO Max. Like, try to find some other way. Yeah. And I'm jealous that you got the German Blu-ray because I'm sure that transfer looked a lot better. And from my understanding, that has like commentaries and stuff on it. And I'm very curious to hear any commentaries that were you know, involved in this movie. Those didn't get ripped with the rest of it, but uh, I'll have to see what, what I can make happen. But while they were casting for the Hitcher himself, Harmon was really into the idea of Terrence Stamp doing it. He said, quote, Stamp said that he worked very hard to get into his roles and that to get into the mind of that madman would have been completely destructive to his entire personality. <laughs> I get it, man. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. He's a messed up dude. <laughs> So instead, they convinced Rucker Howard to get back in the villain's seat, despite his announcements that he was done with playing that sort of role. The character of the Hitcher is really interesting to me because he is both extremely human, but also slightly heightened. You know, he's not some masked frog boy or a mutant or anything, but he also stretches reality in the way that he like survives attacks and is hyper accurate and everything. It creates this really interesting kind of surreal dynamic between what he can do and his appearance. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that he just always seems to know where Jim is, no mm -hmm. matter what, in this vast desert landscape. He can always just show up when he needs to. I also want to get your thoughts on something that Rucker said to Santa Fantastique, which was, quote, what attracted me to this script was that you can't understand the man at all. This is the most unclear villain that I've ever seen. Now, to me, this is true and works to the benefit of the movie because you're constantly looking for something to grip onto, some motive or connection, and it keeps you both really engaged and also, I think, empathetic with Jim, who's going through the same thing. I'm curious to hear what you think about this sort of blank slate character. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true and, and really plays into the movie itself because I feel like so many of the themes or like the metaphors, it has are very much blank slates as well. You, I, I have so many different possible readings of this movie and I've heard so many other ones as well. And I think John Ryder being this like enigma of a character that you just don't know anything about and that you could read into in any way plays into that same aspect of the film yeah i totally agree there's uh i think i've mentioned it before but there's this david lynch uh quote about how real art is something where it's you understand literally what's happening on screen but you're able to apply multiple interpretations to it and, and bring new messages away from it by either coming to it with a new framing or just repeat viewings or whatever I think that this is absolutely that kind of art where you are able to revisit it and come away with something new, depending on sort of where your mind is at going into it. A hundred percent. And I think that sounds like endorsement from David Lynch that the hitcher is high art. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I totally agree. <laughs> Jennifer Jason Lee is great in it as Nash. Mm. She's reunited with Howard after the Verhoeven movie Flesh and Blood. And she said that she was really stoked about it. She loved working with him. Also, I should note, she specifically did not give a shit about the getting pulled apart scene while Rutger and the studio executives whinged about it. <laughs> she was like, it had to happen. I get it. This is just what it is. Oh, that's great. I didn't I didn't realize that. So I'm happy she was like on board and didn't feel like she was being, you know, I don't know, used or anything. She seemed very much on board for it. That's great. It was a 48 day shoot. And in Cinefantastique, Harmon said that the budget was $6 million, despite Wikipedia reporting it at 7.9. I'm going to obviously assume that he knows what he's talking about. And so that means yeah. that the $5.8 million box office is at least closer to breaking even. So uh, more of a success than uh, Wikipedia might have you believe. Yeah. 
And, and yeah. this definitely seemed like a cable HBO constantly on and like a video play as well. You know, breaking even at the box office then is probably like you're making a handsome profit with how healthy video was at the time. Yeah. Plus, you know, it's produced by HBO. So, you know, they're going to be yeah. running it all the time. Yep. Exactly. Once they have it, they can just use it to fill slots. So that's free mm-hmm. programming. Absolutely. It was panned by critics for the most part. There is, of course, a very famous Ebert review where he gave it zero stars and called it, quote, diseased and corrupt. But nobody mentions that old mean Gene Siskel matched it. He also gave it zero stars and said it was ripping off Duel. Yeah, which I mean, it, there's definitive dual inspiration i think like i think in i remember reading an article with uh about eric red and like dual was one of the tapes he had like by his tv or something like yeah so and and he i think specifically had mentioned dual being one of his favorites so i think that's certainly the case but look i love roger ebert he's been my favorite film critic since i was a kid but i disagree with him a number of occasions and this just happens to be one of them (laughs) and i think that that's a healthy thing to have with like critics that you're fans of and you like their work is you know you accept that you don't see eye to eye all the time my my current favorite is amy nicholson i really love her i think she's fantastic but i disagree with her uh every so often too on film so now i think so much of especially in the social media age is just like how can you have a different opinion than me and just like go into a flame <laughs> war and i don't know man i don't have time for that <laughs> like <laughs> different people like different things and that's fine you know oh, i yeah. love the hitcher ebert didn't no big deal no big deal. I, I This is, I think, part of why I'm bristling more against the Siskel thing, because it's like, I think that it's certainly influenced by Duel, but to say that it's mm. it's ripping it off, I think, is unfair to this yeah. movie, because it's doing a lot more than just having an unknown guy chasing him in a car. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, this is doing a lot more than, than Duel in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, if you want a real ripoff of Duel that I also enjoyed very much... There was a at at the I think it was the Chattanooga Film Fest. I watched this movie called Duel on the River, uh, and it was Duel on a River. <laughs> it, was a, it was a kayak and a motorboat. <laughs> That's great. It was that great. Sounds like a fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was like a nano budget thing. It was made for like a thousand dollars and a prayer. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it got into the Chattanooga Film Festival. It was wonderful. I truly yeah. encourage people to check it out. If you like Duel, it's literally Duel on the River. It's a lot of fun. Well, I do love Duel, so now I think I might have to check this out. (laughs) There you go. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Directors of Duel on the River. (laughs) There was a follow-up article from the LA Times in August of 1986, where they discussed looking for a better reception on video. And I found it interesting that after all the kerfuffle about the pulling death, producer Paul Lewis pointed to it and HBO's reservations as a reason, people didn't like it in the opposite direction. He said, quote, we weren't able to show the key killing on screen. It's that simple. The death is a horrible death, but it happens off camera. There's other gore in the movie, other killings, but this is the main one. It's the motivation for the hero. You can't show all the killings we showed and then not show the main one. It's cheating the audience. So he thinks that the reason that the movie flopped is because people felt cheated at the end didn't go see it a second time, didn't go tell people to go check it out. Um, I I don't know if I agree or not. I, I would have to mull it over a little more, but I think it is at least interesting that after this was something that they had pushed so hard against, that's then a producer was like, oh, this is the reason why people didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I necessarily buy that either. I mean, 
so much of horror is, you know, about what you don't see and how that can even be more scary and, and disturbing. Mm-hmm. And I think this works in a very disturbing way without you ever seeing it and hits just as hard. So I don't know if I really buy that, that reasoning on his part. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows what the real reason is? We'll never know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into the actual movie. I love this. Are you afraid of the dark intro with Jim lighting the cigarette? (laughs) Yep. The match. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, it's him with the beautiful landscape and everything. Mm hmm. And it's early morning, and our jo- our guy Jim Halsey is trying to stay awake as he drives, and the rain begins. He he can't do it though, and he he almost smashes into a truck. And now, obviously, this movie gets identified as an allegory for good and evil a lot. But also, I think you mentioned that there are several different readings that this could sort of be positioned with. And I'm going to sort of prime the pump on a few of these for people to consider. Sure, good versus evil is is one of the more common ones. I think up to a point, the movie also kind of functions as a proto final destination movie. Mm-hmm. Like you could look at it as like he avoided death here. And then after that, it's it's pursuing him. Yep. Or even I think there's a bit of Jacob's ladderness to it where like maybe he died there and is in hell or he's in purgatory and he doesn't want to go to his final resting place. And that's what John Ryder's there to do. Right. Usher him through. Yep. Yep. There's also some thoughts that Jim is the hitcher, especially because of how frequently Eric Red's movies deal with the deteriorating mental state of the protagonist and everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of different paths for, for your viewing to take you down. I think that they are all very interesting. Obviously, yeah. we can talk about which you, I don't, I don't know, maybe felt in the moment uh, this last <laughs> rewatch uh, towards the end. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that people are sort of aware of those as we go through it. Yeah, can I throw a couple more on there? Just two real quick Hell ones. Yeah, do I it. mean, I've got like a long list, but the other two ones you mentioned mental health. The other thing that I see this as an allegory for is like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. You know, something that you are riding with and have constantly with you, but that you mm. can't necessarily overcome and that it's a challenge. The other is drug addiction. I see that sometimes as well. Uh, you know, you need to vanquish it. You know, you need to defeat it, but you just can't make yourself do it. I see that as well sometimes in some of the readings for the film. Definitely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Jim sees the hitcher, the titular hitcher on the road, and he stops. Maybe this will keep him awake. My mother told me never to do this, he says. 1986, also the year Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer came out. So really a bad year for Hitchhiking's image. Well, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer was made in 86, but it didn't get released until 1990. That's true. Uh, It had a real hard time getting released just because of how disturbing it was. That's right. Uh, But I'm still applying that 1986 (laughs) was when it was on people's minds. that Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sorry. The only reason I know this and to jump in is because it's come up now with, in horror drafts a couple times in terms of what decade it should be drafted in. Yeah. And we go by when it was released. So we just did a 90s mega draft. And so it was available then. Made the cut. Made the cut. Yeah. Yeah. Smart play. <laughs> <laughs> he shakes Jim's hand after sneezing into his own, which I really laughed a lot at. Mm-hmm. And he introduces himself as John Ryder, but refuses to say where he's headed. And things are damn awkward, although he does look very cool with that little cigarette dangling out his mouth there. Yeah. Yeah, it's immediately unsettling. Like, you know immediately Jim made the wrong decision four minutes into this movie when he stops to pick up a hitchhiker on the side of the road. As if if the title wasn't enough for you, uh, <laughs> Rucker Howard's just performance and just, like, disturbing nature in this scene is just all you need to know. 
yeah, it's really brought to a head as well when Ryder forces Jim past the broken down Volkswagen. We had seen this car driving earlier, and Jim is scared, asking him to get out, but the hitcher talks in circles and laughs at him, refusing to do it. Mm-hmm. What do you want? asks Jim. That's what the other guy said, <laughs> says John, and reveals he cut off his legs and arms and head, and he's going to do the same thing to Jim. Really, it's just so great. This opening sequence is just so fantastic where you're like, wow, they're really not wasting any time. Like the threats are flying fast and loose and they are intense. Yeah, absolutely. They get to a construction checkpoint and the hitcher threatens Jim with a switchblade into the junk. The guy thinks they're gay, though, not that it's a hostage situation from the hand in the crotch and he just sends them through. Mm-hmm. You want to know what happens to an eyeball when it's punctured? The great line. Yeah. I also love his collecting the tear with the knife and letting it fall off the blade as he says, I want you to stop me. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, that's a pretty uh, a line that you can read into. <laughs> so Absolutely. Yeah. With this movie, you sure can. It's framed really well. The scene itself is really great. And there's there's a lot of impactful dialogue happening here. Mm-hmm. And he starts forcing Jim to say. I want to die. Just four words. But Jim can't do it. He summons his strength and he forces the hitcher out the door. What a rush. He's exhilarated. (laughs) Yep. And I think he says, I don't want to die. It's like his first instance of fighting back in just the slightest way. And, you know, if you'd read the film as John Ryder, as this kind of angel of death kind of character, I do wonder if he had given in and said, I want to die, if the movie would have ended there. But the fact that he had that little bit of fight and was able to push him away and said, I don't want to, if that is what causes this whole events to continue and, and get Ryder to try to get him to fight him and take and overtake him, basically. Yeah, I think it also really applies to the drug addiction reading that you were talking about. You know, the idea of the whispering in your ear, the drugs telling you that life is not worth living. And then you have to summon your strength and say, no, I uh, need to kick this because life is worth living. I don't want to die. Yep. The pitcher isn't dead, though, or even really startled. (laughs) In fact, he kind of smiles. And we get this amazing shot from below him as he stares into the horizon. An extreme low angle. I mean, you're looking from like his thighs up and just the (laughs) clouds and heavens above him. It is so low. It's amazing. Yeah. Fun music starts as Jim continues to drive. He's excited to see other people on the road, even though the kids are pretending to shoot at him until the bear reveals the hitcher is in there and encouraging the kids to shoot. I like this. It's like a fun reveal when he like pulls the yeah. bear head aside. But also, of course, this does kind of work with the stand in for general evil. Like, oh, shoot, shoot at people with your guns, kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. By the way, like, do you remember being a kid and just toy guns given to you at a super young age? My parents actually were very strict about not allowing toy oh, guns. So there you- that that's very progressive of them for the time. I mean. On my, I was digitizing my family's home videos, and on my third birthday party, was given a very realistic-looking toy gun. Wow. There you <laughs> yeah. go. Hey, yeah. I was mad about it at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Jim tries to warn this family that the guy, you, that guy's a maniac. <laughs> but he gets hit by the bus because he's on the wrong side of the road. And I really enjoyed when the bus driver is like, "Hey, where are you going?" When Jim peels out in pursuit. Yep. He's too late, though. 
and he pukes after finding their car abandoned by the side of the road and leaking blood. People who don't like puking are in for a tough ride with this movie. Yeah, it happens a couple times. And I do actually really appreciate how they did him stumbling upon this car. You don't see any of the gore of the family being killed. He comes up, you see him through the windows looking in, his reaction, and you see before that a little blood dripping down onto his shoe. You know, this film is relatively not that gory considering like how uh, strong people's reactions are to it, especially we're talking like some critical responses. You know, a lot more is is kind of hinted at than shown, really. Yeah, yeah. Eric in particular was like, so much of this movie happens off screen. Like, I don't Mm. know what people were getting so worked up about. And frankly, I'm inclined to agree with him. You know, they do a great job of utilizing your imagination to fill in a lot of the gaps. But yeah, there is only so much of the actual violence that you see happen. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes it scary is that it he stumbles upon it a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Jim sees him getting into a truck as a passenger and they drive off despite Jim's protestations. And that same truck shows up again later, bashing Jim off the road because the hitcher is driving now and solo. So I guess we're meant to assume he bought the car from him. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he did the most legal means possible of acquiring that vehicle. What I wanted to say is that when Jim pulls off the road to in this like kind of dust storm that's kicked up, yeah, and the hitcher shows up, he doesn't try to stop him in this garage at all. He literally throws him the keys to the car. Yeah. What was interesting to me about this movie is once Jim said, "I want to live." John Ryder is never attacking Jim again. He's t- attacking people around him. He's ruining him, his life. He's torturing him, essentially, to goad him into a reaction. But he's never actually attacking Jim. Mm-hmm. And also, one thing, if we're talking about different readings of this film, inside this garage, you'll see there's a sign, a one-way sign, and it's pointed directly up wow. as if, like to the heavens wow. so if we're talking about if he's in purgatory and these different readings you know there's just you'll see some other arrows pointing directly up throughout the film as well which wow. i think is interesting i didn't notice those that's fun yeah i did kind of move past it a little quickly but yeah he i like this scene where he does pull off because he it gives you a real sense of the isolation that he's feeling there's nobody in this garage besides him and the hitcher the phone doesn't work or anything i think it does do a great job of creating that sort of solitary feeling well yeah so much of this movie is him showing up at like a gas station or something and nobody else is there and there's just no one around or like when he shows up to the longhorn diner where jennifer jason lee works you know she's originally not gonna let him in and then finally does let him in early even though they haven't opened yet so this the desert setting really kind of fills in this sense of him being alone out here and having to deal with john Ryder himself because no one else is going to help him yeah similarly when jennifer jason lee is like oh the cops take 45 minutes to come when someone's actively been shot so yeah yeah exactly <laughs> And oh, and also when I'm sorry, so just having rewatched it again, just all these things I'm seeing. But when Giant Rider rides off in the truck getting picked up by those people, you see he waves his white handkerchief out the window as if he's surrendering. Like, I'm not going to fight you. You got to come and like stop me, basically. Uh Anyway, is I was another thing I picked up. He's tricky, that John Ryder. Yep. Yep. He does bash him off the road in this truck, though, and, and they diverge and Jim finds another gas station to pull into. But amazingly, the truck bashes right through the station itself. Loved this moment. Blues Brothers style coming through the mall. (laughs) 
And Ryder lights the match and he ignites the puddle of fuel that he created. And they both drive off as there's an enormous explosion. First of all, fantastic Christine style grill on fire as Jim drives away. Yep. Also, the match lighting is more connection between our two lads here. Same sound effect to help draw that parallel. Mm hmm. Ryder waits like he lights it and he waits and you see these slow motion shots of Jim running away as if he's waiting for him to finally get like safe enough away <laughs> that he can drop it to like light everything on fire without really hurting him. Yeah. He finds the Longhorn restaurant and he begs the woman there to use the phone and she is reluctant because she's just arrived and it isn't open yet, but he's clearly desperate. So she finally agrees. And this is Jennifer Jason Lee as Nash. He drops in a quarter to call 911, which seemed like a damn RoboCop joke to me. Like, that can't be real anywhere, right? That you have to pay to call 911. <laughs> I haven't seen a payphone since I was a very tiny lad. So maybe that's the case, which would be insane. Yeah. But could be. I, it's been so long since I've used yeah. one. I have no idea. Hey, old folks out there, sound off. Was that true? <laughs> He does get the call off, though, and, and he says he won't go anywhere. He lists off his name and, and everything. He says, here's where I am. Come get me. She does say the police are notoriously slow, though. So so Nash cooks up a burger while he washes up. I really thought this was an endearing line when Nash says, guess it's safe for me to smoke now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's headed to San Diego, and she says this is a family business, so she's kind of stuck, but you never know. And I really love that moment where you see that she's got dreams, even if they aren't explored. That's just something just for her. Mm -hmm. Actors say characters should have secrets to build a backstory. And I'm like, this is a perfect example of that. Like, we don't ever learn what she dreams of getting away to do, but you can see that they're there. Yep. And I'm curious if so many people, people's names in this movie begin with a J, Jim, John Ryder, her cousin Jeremy, who runs the restaurant, and his her uncle Jack, who cooks at it. The one of the cops is also named Jack. Wow. There's so many J names in here, and I I don't know if there's like a specific reason, but it just really stuck uh, stood out to me this time. Wow, Jesus, G he says Jesus when he goes <laughs> into the bathroom to clean up. Yep. <laughs> she leaves him alone since he's clearly distracted. And in the back, you can hear a speeding car, which I like this sort of auditory clue that it's happening before it even does. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, he's lifting a finger to his mouth instead of a fry, which is both a funny and spooky moment for me. Also, in the original script, it was an eyeball. Yeah. But in addition to being just something that Harmon liked better, it worked better for staging it as a fry since it's basically the same shape. So just generally, I think an improvement. Yeah, yeah. A lot harder to just suddenly be cupping an eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did think it was interesting that there was a lot of complaining about this moment being excessively gory, too, in interviews. And I was like, good grief. Yeah. Bro, I mean, you barely see any blood on the end of that finger. It's not <laughs> like, you know, the ketchup was really blood that was like all <laughs> over the fries or anything. I mean, it's it is just like this one dismembered finger that's, you know, I guess it almost looks a little grayish. Yeah, <laughs> At least on the transfer I had. <laughs> it's also like i mean it's like a medium shot like you have to be able to see yeah. him at the diner like lifting up to his mouth uh, exactly they're children mm. <laughs> he pukes and runs outside and the cops rush in and detain his ass finding the bloody switchblade in his pocket which he says oh he planted it there yep when i don't know uh, yeah i think this scene is kind of the first instance we get of maybe 
John Ryder not quite being a fully human character and perhaps a little bit supernatural or something mm. otherworldly about him. Yeah. Or that he exists not within the realm of reality. Because how he plants the knife and how he's able to sneak in and get the finger into the fries with neither of them noticing is a little tough to determine if he is just a, a human character. Yeah, I think especially it's an interesting escalation from just him being able to withstand the attacks thus far. Yeah. Yep. They're questioning Jim and he takes a long time between answers. Plus the number that he's positive is the drive away company leads to the answering machine of a dry cleaning service. This is a really fantastic scene. Mm -hmm. The guy leading the questioning though, doesn't think it's Jim, although he kind of hides that from him. He kind of just like mutters it to another cop as Jim is led away. Hey, I don't think it's Jim. By the way, I don't think it's Jim, actually. Don't tell him. Yeah. <laughs> like, any fool can see this kid's not a killer. Like, what are you guys doing bringing him to me? <laughs> Jim spends the night in lockup, though. And when he awakes, his cell door is open and the phone is ringing and nobody's answering his hellos. <laughs> yeah. And some of the graffiti on the wall, ha again, has an arrow pointing straight up. Hell yeah. It's spooky as hell, man. I really loved this. Probably, like, starting here. This like surreal part of this movie where he's like kind of in this dream state walking through and, and you know, the dog stares at him in the hallway and then yeah. walks off and the music and the radio playing. It's just really good shit, man. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. loved it. Really. I thought it was great. Yeah. This is where the chaos really gets ramped up where John Ryder's just going to fuck up his whole life, basically. <laughs> yeah. And I think you see a little bit of the sort of unfeeling nature of the world here that they're they're sort of pushing when he follows the dog and then it's chewing on the corpse of the cops you know it's mm -hmm. it's masters supposedly yep and they're all dead yeah so all all the cops are dead by the way that's <laughs> took a long walk to get there <laughs> yeah all, all the cops in the building because very quickly we hear sirens off in the distance H how they're aware of the, what's happened i don't know but <laughs> a bunch of other cops show up very quickly <laughs> They heard <laughs> the dogs told them and then said, all right, we're going to clean up here. Mm -hmm. More cops are arriving. Though, so Jim, he snags his gun and he, he makes a break for it into the desert. I really love this transition with the speeding by car to snap you out of the dreamlike vibe. You know, it's now a little more concrete feeling and, and they do a great job with that transition. Yeah. Jim heads across the road to a payphone at the gas station right as two cops pull up and he holds them hostage and he looks like a dang nut. Doesn't take their guns, though, which seems like a mistake from a purely strategic perspective. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit odd. <laughs> he uses the, their radio in the car to get in contact with the police captain, Estridge. And this scene is so funny to me where he's like, I'm putting my trust in you, Captain. I'll give myself up if you listen to me. And then suddenly Rutger pulls up and just coldly shoots both cops in the damn melon. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the instances of a couple in the movie where he says, I'm going to give up or turn myself in or something. And then all hell breaks loose, basically. Oh, yeah. Like he needs to keep it's like it's telling you he needs to keep fighting. He can't just give up and give in. Yeah, it does happen a couple times. I, I like this one a lot. Jim hurries to grab control of the car, but he runs it off the road. I think it's great. He screams and runs in terror. Mm. I also love this moment where he considers shooting himself. Mm hmm. You know, he fumbles with the gun and he puts it up against his mouth and it looks like he's going to be like, no, I'm fucking done with this. But like before, he doesn't want to die. 
And we get this great long shot with a wide perspective and the mountains over him and really makes you feel how small he feels in this moment. Absolutely. Jim walks to a cafe and the cashier is like, wow, you're suspicious as hell, guy. (laughs) (laughs) He walks behind the corner and suddenly Jim is being accosted by the hitcher in his booth. First of all, very fun that it's only after this guy is no longer in eyesight that the hitcher shows up. Really enjoyed that. Yeah. Making the world's longest cup of coffee. (laughs) He's off screen, too. Because, I mean, in a movie full of great scenes, this is one of my favorite in the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, the guy running this place is just off in the back forever making his coffee. Yeah, I love this scene as well. What a great line when Rucker Howard is like, how do you feel like it's going? (laughs) Yeah. Just a great line. And Jim whips out the gun under the table. Unfortunately, it's empty. Even more greatness as Rutger taunts him, you know, with the hand under the gun. And he slams it and does a fake gunshot. Yep. And the gun is, in fact, empty as as our, our guy here pulls it several times and, and none of the uh, no bullets in there. Mm hmm. And this is like one of the, I think, the best performance in the movie by Rucker Hauer. I mean, the way that he just like mocks him in this scene and he's just fantastic. He's just so good. I mean, he's good in the whole movie, but this scene especially, he's really, really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It really is something special. Jim asks, why are you doing this to me? He repeats this and Rutger puts two pennies on his eyes. Sharon style. Pay the damn ferryman. He says, figure it out. (laughs) And this is, I think, one of the really more supernatural moments of the movie. I think that from the minute that he shows up to this utilizing the mythology to sort of allude to a death here. Oh, man. Yeah, this this sent me on a deep dive in not like a surface level deep dive that I can go on <laughs> since I don't know Greek mythology that much. But I was sitting there and I'm like, oh, is Nash supposed to be like Nausicaa? This like woman who helps Odysseus on his trip Mm. back home and has like an unrequited love because you never, they never have a romantic relationship much like Nash and Jim in this movie. Yeah. Just these coins on the eyes in this scene made me think like, Oh, I wonder if there's a lot more Greek, you know, mythology references within this film, Yeah, which probably wasn't part of it, but just like made me think and made me like try to dig and try to find what I see what I could find. So that's, that's how great this movie works. It's just making you wonder and contemplate what exactly is going on and what the meaning is of so many things. That's exactly it. You know, like that David Lynch quote that we were, that we were talking about earlier, next time you can go into it and be like, Oh, like, let me look for these Greek mythology things. Like, let me look at Mm -hmm. it from this perspective and this angle. And the fact that it even has the, the texture there to grab hold of and, and look at it in another way is part of what makes this movie so great. Oh yeah. Suddenly though, John is gone and Jim has a handkerchief with a bunch of ammo for his gun. That's scary. (laughs) (laughs) He sneaks onto the bus that just pulled in and he loads it while he hides in the bathroom. And Nash is on the bus. He confronts her about being innocent, but the bus is quickly stopped. And he again gives up. He says, I'm coming out. Just let me talk to whoever's in charge and I'll try and explain it to them. The cop taking him in, though, says, you just spit on my wrist. Wipe it up. So that it'll look like he's going for the gun, obviously, and he can shoot Jim, who, quote, just wasted two of his friends like it's damn GTA in here. (laughs) 
I uh, like the other guy is just he's like, just wait until we get back to the station and then we can police brutality. (laughs) Yeah, we'll take the phone book out and go to town on him. Like, just chill. We don't have a bus full of passengers to see what we're going to do to this kid. I'm the good and reasonable one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nash holds them at gunpoint, though, and she saves Jim because she can't believe what she's seeing here. And she escorts him to taking the cop's car. And the hitcher sees them and the chase is back on. Cops are shooting at them and ignoring their radio pleas to let them turn themselves in. So at some point, you can't give up. There's no choice. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Jennifer Jason Lee is really spectacular in this chase as well. I think that she's a lot of fun as sort of this trying to be the middle ground character and be like, well, you know, they're not going to let us just pull over, but also like, I don't want to shoot the cops or anything. I I just think that she's not in the movie an insane amount. It's, it's, it's much more about the interplay between John and Jim, Mm -hmm. but she does so much with the screen time that she's given. She's really spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, she is. I also really enjoyed the car just kind of falling apart slowly as it takes more gunshots. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do pretty realistic, like, vehicles not working and running down after the damage that they take, for the most part. Because that'll well, that'll play a, a part later on in the movie. Yeah, I mean, even right here, where both pursuing cops overturn when Jim slams on the brakes and one shoots out the tire of the other, where, you know, it's a classic gag. Mm-hmm. But then also, our intrepid duo, like, they're driving off pretty slow because they're in, like, a <laughs> smoldering heap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And and these two cop cars, just the rolls that they have going on here, they just roll forever, it <laughs> seems like. And it's great slow-mo. Very it really is fantastic. Yeah, it's a good one. And you expect that to be like, oh, we're going to take another little break. He's going to drive a little bit further. No, no break. Helicopter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing as it rises into sight, we get more gunfire and chasing. But finally, Ryder shoots it down. And Jennifer Jason Lee, she does see him. And it's this great explosion leading to multiple car crashes. So it's a really fun pyrotechnic. I I mentioned this on Letterboxd. And I'm going to kind of peel up behind the curtain a little bit to say that as much as I really, really loved this movie, one of the things where it, it does lose me just a tiny, tiny bit is when other people are like, yeah, we can see the hitcher. <laughs> Once it's revealed oh, that uh, yeah. that other people can like clock him as a physical presence, mm-hmm. and it, it does feel like suddenly you have a, a a little bit less wiggle room on the readings. Sure, it still lets you do plenty, and uh, you know, very very minor nitpick. But I just did want to mention that. No. But I know what you mean. Like, as soon as, because you'll we'll get to it there, but yeah, as soon as the other cops know that he exists and is, like, also doing these things and it's not really Jim, it does, like, lose a bit of, uh, I don't know if it's the momentum it's built up or, or the, the tone it's set, basically, where it's Jim just trying to defend himself against John and it's, like, this, you know, chaotic entity that he is trying to avoid and not be killed by, but also like clear his name. And yeah. like, it's not me. It's this other guy and no one believes him. Right. So I, I do see what you mean, but I'm also not sure there's an alternative. I think that in order to like yeah. end the movie, there's somewhat like, I feel like it kind of has to go this, this way. I agree. Yeah. I haven't seen it enough times to formulate an alternative. Just my gut reaction, folks. 
<laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> she does say, though, why didn't he kill us? Because he doesn't. He lets them drive off after these cars all explode, and he has no answer for her. Yeah. Scary. <laughs> <laughs> They get a motel room together, and she's scared both of the situation and of Jim. You know, she pretends to sleep and then calls her father, despite his demands not to, while uh, while he showers. I think it is great for because he's like, oh, I'm innocent. Do you believe me? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, no, you don't. I wouldn't either. Like, uh, this is an insane thing that's happening. <laughs> and I think it, it makes sense that she would be trepidatious about this, this even though she wants to believe him and and she thinks that he is a nice guy spending the night with this uh, accused killer and you're on the run together i don't think that it's it's a surprise that she uh pretends to be asleep here so that he doesn't uh, talk to her anymore yeah yeah although you do get the scene before that or is this after where she like sits down with him on the bed it's like she wants to believe because you can tell she kind of has feelings for him and nothing comes of it. And, and I don't know if it's clear if Jim has feelings for her, or if he just needs her in that moment yeah. to help him, basically. Right. She does get the call, though. She she says, I just want you to know where I am. Great choice, Nash. <laughs> it's the last <laughs> thing you want people to know. Yeah. She goes to sleep for real, though. And the hitcher is in the corner of the room. That is very scary. Very. <laughs> he gets into the bed with Nash and he's spooning her. And when she feels his hand, she spins and is startled, but he stifles her noise and absconds with her. And Jim bursts from the shower and he hunts through the truck parking lot until he's captured by the police captain that he spoke on the radio with, who wants his help with something real quick. The way that this is phrased, it's <laughs> like, hey, we just got to take care of something is very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Now, earlier I was describing things as sort of proto Jacob's ladder, but here it's proto saw with this convoluted trap that Nash is in. <laughs> She's tied between two trucks, and if they shoot this guy, his foot will come off the clutch, and it will roll, tearing her in half. So Jim is forced to get into the cab and try and talk to him. Mm -hmm. The problem is that Jim both can't bring himself to shoot and also suspects that she would die anyway because of the whole foot on the clutch thing. He doesn't think that the guy would take it off. So the hitcher is disgusted and says, well then uh, I guess we're just going to go for it. And and he drives and they kill her. Yeah. Yeah. The disgust on uh, John Ryder's face here by the fact that Jim still won't act even in this moment is just so palpable. And you just feel it from the other side of the screen when you watch it. Yeah. And despite his capture, because obviously now the police can move in here and they take him into custody, they still have no idea who he is. And Jim says his name is John Ryder, and suddenly Rutger turns like he can feel Jim's presence on the other side. <laughs> Jim walks in to shake his hand solemnly and then spits in his face. Ryder plays with the spit and smiles before getting walked out, staring at Jim all the while. This is another really fun performance moment for Rutger Hauer here as he's, oh, yes, oh, the spit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he does a good job playing it up. It's a pretty gross <laughs> scene, but he sells it. He sure does. The hitcher is getting taken away in a transport wagon. He's very casually fiddling with his cuffs and humming Daisy Daisy. But Jim is like, I got to kill that guy. And he steals the captain's gun and truck. <laughs> yep. The hitcher makes his move right as Jim drives up, killing the guard and then kind of like spearing himself through the windows, which really made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. 
He's thrown forward when Jim slams on the brake, but as always, he shrugs it off, grabbing the gun and then shooting and advancing on the car as Jim cowers inside. Yep. And here's another scene where, you know, the vehicle that he's in has taken a bunch of damage, so he's like frantically trying to get it to start, hoping that it will, but we don't know because it's been shot up a bunch of times. Yeah, right. Exactly. He does start it after these several attempts, and the truck runs down Rutger, and he looks dead, but Jim is still suspicious, so he slowly walks over. You have the beautiful landscapes in the background as he grabs the gun, but still... He can't bring himself to do it, to do the double tap. And so as he turns away, Rutger says, you must. He gets up. (laughs) He throws his handcuffs away. He forces Jim's hand. And finally, Jim turns and shoots him a few times. You know, we mentioned that there's not a ton of gore and that a lot of the effects happen kind of off screen. They let your imagination do the work. But this initial shot, there's a lot of blood and it's really good. (laughs) Great squibs. Yeah. And the credits roll as he walks back to the car and he kind of stands there pensively. I really love this, you know, not only sort of processing what's just happened, but also it feels like waiting to see if he'll get back up. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really great from beginning to end. They do such a great job of of taking you down this path. I think it's it's really something special. And now, Brantley, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it's not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. I'm going to let you start. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, look, if you want a movie that just by minute four is just going because a hitchhiker is in the car with you and it's unsettling, this is the movie for you. This wastes no time. It is just like a roller coaster from beginning to end. And not just that. There's so much like nuance and metaphorical meaning to it that I don't know what the metaphor is, but there's just so many that you can read into. I mean, this most recent time I was watching it, I was literally wondering if we were looking at like the 10 plagues of Egypt because it starts in the rain and then we get a bunch of blood after water to blood is the first of the plagues. If we were to think that John Ryder is an angel of death, well, the angel of death was sent to kill the firstborn son. We know that Jim has a brother. I don't know if he's firstborn, but maybe that could be it. Sure. You know, I was like, I was literally thinking about all these different crazy ideas as I was rewatching it again this time because this film just begs you to read into it in so many different ways. And like we've discussed before, like, that's one of the great things about really great art is that it makes you question what so many of the things in it mean. Like, you can understand it, like David Lynch says, but you're still just, like, wondering what it all means. And and that's how I feel every single time I've watched The Hitcher. I've watched it, I don't know, five to ten times at this point. And every time I'm just wondering what it all is about. And it is just infinitely compelling in that way. And that's why it is the greatest horror movie ever made. Hell yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think Harmon summed it up really well himself, where he said, I don't think anyone who sees the Hitcher will be neutral about it. Mm -hmm. And I think it is really unique. It's visceral. It's a chase with an explosive ending, but also a deeply personal connection between the pursuit and the pursued. There are all of these great metaphors that you can kind of read into it about. There's uh, the idea of him being evil, I think, does have the most just sort of meat on its bones. You can't half-ass the expulsion of evil. All it takes is for good people to stand by and not pull the trigger. There's always a reason for him not to act. 
but as we see at the end, he says something to the effect of a baby's got to do what a baby's got to do. That was either John Wayne and stagecoach or Tommy Pickles and Rugrats. I can't quite remember. <laughs> but there's another great line, I think, that really plays into it where the hitcher, John Ryder, says, I want you to stop me. And the idea that, like liquid, evil will sort of fill the boundaries of the container that it's in. That it will test the boundaries until people say enough is enough. Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot going on with with this movie in terms of being able to have a distinct reading, but also having a ton of readings where it's like, well, if I thought about it a little more, I could probably come up with some serious evidence for these as well. And I, I love when a movie lets you do that. And it would be one thing if the movie was just working on those levels but the performances are outrageously good mm -hmm. c thomas howell is perfect as the terrified hunted kid yep. rutger hauer is unreal as this possibly supernatural definitely terrifying hitchhiker mm -hmm. all of the even side characters do a great job of being both determined and and terrified about what's happening i, I just think that everything that's happening behind the camera in front of it is is spectacular it's a spectacle and it is spectacular and that's why it's the best horror movie ever made <laughs> brantley i want to thank you so much for coming on the show man this was an absolute blast Please tell the people where they can listen to your show, find you on social media, all that jazz. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this has been a wonderful experience for me, too. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, if you're interested in listening to the podcast, it's called Horror Drafts. You can find it on pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts under Horror Drafts. On socials, I think we're Horror Drafts Pod on Instagram and it might just be Horror Drafts or Horror Drafts Pod on Twitter. I'm not sure. But we just started that one. So I don't have nearly as many followers on Twitter as I do on Instagram. So that's where you'll find us on the socials. Well, there you go. Give them a follow and let's get those numbers up. As far as my plug. Oh, also, I should say. I've been on horror drafts. And so yeah, what a I, great place to start. Yeah, exactly. We, well, and I wanted to say like one of the nice things about horror drafts is that, you know, Nick and I, uh, I came up with the idea and I was like, oh, this would be great because you know, there's so many podcasts and so many horror ones where they just talk about one movie at a time. And, you know, how are we going to compete in that landscape? So we're like, what's a fun idea we can do? Not realizing that it would give us so much homework <laughs> to do every time someone picked a topic that we would just be like scrambling to cram all of these movies. <laughs> But what, what that has created, I think, is a podcast in which I don't mind coming off like an idiot, because <laughs> in many ways, I think I do on that podcast. But we get to bring on very knowledgeable guests like George, who came on to talk kaiju movies. And the guest really gets to shine and like take us to school with how <laughs> much more they know on the topic than we do. And George definitely did that in his episode on kaiju films. I felt like a real Philistine in that episode <laughs> while George was like laying down some so much knowledge so uh definitely check out that episode well i really appreciated the chance to uh go on there and and talk about kaiju movies because i don't get to do it as often as i'd like especially for mm -hmm. ones outside of the godzilla franchise and uh, there are many that yeah. i love so it was really a treat for me and i had a wonderful time and i don't think you sounded like an idiot at all so take that <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's kind of you. Thank you. Well, you sound like a genius, and because you are, you have this encyclopedic so knowledge, uh, both on your podcast and about kaiju films. So you were great, and we loved having you on. Well, thank, thank you. you. Uh, as far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Instagram and Letterboxd. Uh, Patreon. If you're really enjoying the show, you can check out bonus episodes of the podcast. We just recorded a really exciting one last night with Mike Mitchell from the Doughboys came back. Not only is he talking about 1988's Child's Play on our main feed, but now 1988's The Blob remake. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, really. I mean, what a spectacular movie. Another one where it's just really like at the high watermark for practical special effects. And yeah, that's a really special one. So it was a really great time having uh, Mitch come back. And we also talked a little bit about Twisted Metal, the Twisted Metal show. So if you're interested in hearing about that, check that out. Also, commentaries and episodes about, I mean, there's so much stuff. We've done so many wild episodes over there. So just check it out. Send questions for the mailbag to bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com and rate and review if you're enjoying the show. Oh, that was a lot of plugs. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.